I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes one last time. Today we will conclude our 10-part series on the Beatitudes by looking at Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. I've certainly been both encouraged and challenged by our study of these virtues. I pray that you have as well. As we kind of conclude and wrap up today though, just want to remind you that the Beatitudes um, are really the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon from Jesus that extends all the way to Matthew chapter 8. So, although we're ending our series here, maybe maybe you want to pick up and maybe in your families or in your home. Begin to study the rest of the sermon and, and take some of the themes that we've seen here and, and see how they've, they're developed throughout the rest of the sermon. You, sir, if you need some resources, I'm certainly glad to provide those for you. Just see me after the service or shoot me an email. Helpful resources to study the rest of the sermon. But today we'll end on Matthew 5, verses 10-12. through 12. Let's begin reading up in verse 1 for the context. Remember, brethren, this is God's holy and inspired word. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward and is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. This is God's word. Join me again in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we stop and we pause to both thank you for your word, but also to plead for your favor to be upon us this hour, that you would teach us from your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, to bring about in us the reality of which this word speaks of. We pray that you would set before us Jesus Christ, that we would see him and be conformed into his image. We pray, Father, that you would do this, that you might receive all glory and honor and praise in this place and in our lives. Lord, hear us, we ask, through the merits of our mediator and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you've spent much time in the church at all, there's no doubt that you've heard these Beatitudes and these lines many times before. But I want you to try to imagine for a second that you were hearing them for the very first time. You're a brand new Christian. You're just getting an intro into the teachings of Jesus and the gospel of His kingdom. And here you have this statement. Blessed and happy and flourishing 
are those who are hunted down and hated and slandered and prosecuted and sometimes beaten and put to death. Doesn't this sound kind of absurd to natural reason? Unless there's something wrong with you, do you really want this kind of life? Much less would this type of life be described as happy or blessed or flourishing. And yet, I want you to notice as we come to this beatitude that this is by far the most detailed. Jesus expands upon it unlike any other beatitude. In fact, he repeats it twice as well in verse 10 and 11. Why does he do this? Maybe he does this because of all the beatitudes, this one sounds the most outrageous. Maybe he does this because this is the one that's most difficult to swallow. Or maybe he does it because this is of supreme importance and cannot and must not be overlooked. Brethren, this certainly kind of grates against the notion that Jesus came to give us a healthy and wealthy life here on earth. But all that being said, there's no doubt that this last beatitude is kind of a summary and a bookend to everything that we've seen so far in our entire 10-part series here. We know this in part because the blessing that He gives is the same blessing that He gave in the first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a bookend. It shows us that um, the the Beatitudes all go together. But more than this, it also summarizes and reinforces the central message that we've seen through all of them. What have we seen with all of these Beatitudes? Haven't we seen how they're paradoxical? Right? They're counterintuitive. Blessedness is poverty and hunger and mourning. The natural person doesn't see blessedness as these things. The natural person doesn't see blessedness as people hating you. Even when it comes to religion, the natural person is fine with religion as long as it's kept personal. That's between you and whatever your specific faith is. The natural person has no problem with religion as long as it's practical for the here and now that it helps the community. But the natural person doesn't have time or room for a religion that makes life more difficult and painful. The natural person finds blessedness and happiness and flourishing in popularity. When people think well of you, when they speak well of you, not the opposite. So this beatitude is kind of the epitome of how all the beatitudes are paradoxical and counterintuitive. But another thing that we've seen again and again throughout these Beatitudes is how each of these virtues are a characteristic of the genuine Christian. All along we've seen and considered that these represent the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This is the Spirit of God at work. These are the marks that the Spirit of the age to come has broken into this age. Well, if I were to ask you, whom is it that perfectly embodies the kingdom of God in every way? Whom is it that perfectly embodies all of these characteristics and virtues? Wouldn't we all say the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, don't we see then most clearly with this last one right here how the perfect man was persecuted and reviled and hated and slandered and accused of evil and put to death? This last beatitude then is just as much a mark and an embodiment of a Christian as any of the others. Being meek or being a peacemaker or showing mercy or fighting for righteousness, justice, is just as much a mark of a Christian as being persecuted. We can't escape that here. And this grates against us naturally. This is a characteristic that describes someone who is entirely unlike everyone else who's not a Christian. Again then, I want you to see that this last beatitude is not an addendum. It's not something tacked on at the end. It's not something of secondary importance. It's not something that's only true of the original audience or only true of certain people in certain places. But this entails the sum and substance of everything that Jesus taught in these eight Beatitudes. This is the height of paradoxical. This is the height of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This is the height of the evidence and characteristic of a genuine Christian. And it spells out what we have seen from the very beginning that the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is what? Without exception, the unbeliever lives for this world and what they can get out of this world while the Christian, in contrast, decidedly does not because the Christian has renounced the world to follow Jesus Christ. This is never more evident than in the last beatitude. A believer remains loyal to Christ, obedient to our calling, even though the world hates us and persecutes persecutes us. Only those who love the Lord Jesus Christ more than this world and more than the approval of others, only those who love the Lord Jesus Christ will traverse this road. But it's to these that God promises a blessing. You are blessed, and in the end, you will inherit it all because you are living for the age to come. And the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Brethren, that's what I want you to see today from this beatitude. To open this up, we're going to answer three questions. Three questions. What does it mean to be persecuted? Why does the world persecute? And how is persecution blessedness? Let's try to answer this first one. And the first two kind of go together, so keep that in mind. What does it mean to be persecuted? What is persecution? We need to note, first of all, the difference between persecution and just general mistreatment. The word persecuted literally means, it carries the connotation of being chased, or being harassed, being hunted down, um, targeted, right, for a specific reason. This isn't just general mistreatment. And it isn't just suffering, it's just part of living in a fallen world. I recently I read of a, a Major League Baseball player who out of his Christian convictions uh, created quite a stir because he spoke out against gay pride. And uh, he angered team management. And shortly thereafter, he was released. He was cut. He was let go from the team. 
And at first, I was thought, I thought, well, well, this is this is persecution. This isn't right. Seems to go on a lot. And you know, truth be known, maybe it was. I don't know for sure. But I do. I will say, I looked at the, you know his performance on the field, and there was a really good argument that he was just tremendously underperforming. He was having a really, really bad year. I'm looking at it objectively. I'm thinking, well, yeah, he certainly deserved to be cut no matter what he said or didn't say. I I, I bring this up because we live in a day of outrage. We live in a day where there's people full, uh, people are full of the martyr complex. They want to be the victim. And we can fall into this same trap as well. We live in the day when the media loves to stir things up. When the media loves to give half the story. So we need to be careful of this martyr complex in this sense. Persecution is targeting its harassment in direct relation to one's connection to Christ. Because it is an attack on Christ Himself. Which we're going to think about more specifically under the second point. Furthermore, persecution isn't just you know, mistreatment of a Christian, maybe because of other things. Maybe the mistreatment that we receive is because we're rude, or we're insensitive, or we're prideful, or we're arrogant, or we're judgmental, or we're self-righteous. Maybe we're not thoughtful. Maybe we're not proper. Maybe we're selfish. It's not just general mistreatment because you're a Christian. It could be because you're just not a really nice person. A few years ago, when I lived in Atlanta, I used to go out with a group and do some street preaching downtown. And uh, I began to notice, though, the more I hung around the street preaching crowd, I mean, there's like, there's like groups of men that do this on a regular basis. And, and I'm not trying to disparage uh, what they do. A lot of what they do is profitable if it's done the right way. But the more I hung around these men, I saw that they love to instigate conflict. They just loved it. One day we were in Centennial Olympic Park, uh, downtown Atlanta, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon uh, during the Final Four. So there's all these people in town. In town. And uh, one of the guys I was with was, was preaching at the top of his lungs. Um, and a police officer came over to us. And he, I still remember, he said, do you see over here, these are families out here trying to enjoy the park. Do you have to be shouting at the top of your lungs? And my, my friend started going on and on about his First Amendment rights. And the police officer interrupted him and said, but you know what? Your First Amendment rights don't give you the right to disturb the peace. And he threatened to arrest us. That resonated with me. My friend thought it was persecution. That resonated with me. We shouldn't think that when we disturb the peace or we purposefully instigate conflict, we shouldn't expect to see that hostile reaction as persecution. Maybe we can learn a little bit from Daniel. You know, when the the edict came that he could not uh, pray, it was forbidden to pray. Um, He certainly didn't hide his prayer life. But he didn't go out on the street corner either so that everybody saw him. And the history of the church, sadly, it's full of sad stories of Christians instigating persecution. They want attention. They want glory. Or they think it earns them a reward. It's not what Jesus is saying here. 
Nevertheless, at the same time, we need to balance this with the fact that persecution, of course, takes many different forms. Sometimes it is open and hostile, but sometimes it is subtle and civil. That's made clear by verse 11 right here. It may be being beaten and thrown in jail, but it might just be, you know, being reviled, mocked, insulted. Or when people accuse us of evil, false motives, sinful actions, when we're ostracized or rejected, when we're outcast, when we're passed over for a promotion, when we're laughed at, when we're uh, excluded socially, when, when we're sued, when we're accused. Those are forms of persecution as well. It's not just something that's violent. It's not just something that is physical. It's not just something that is like legal. The world speaks of us in chapter, excuse me, verse 11. In these ways, that is persecution. We saw that from 1 Peter 4 as well. When the world maligns you. I think it's interesting here that uh, in Luke's account of the Beatitudes, in Luke 6.26, Jesus adds a woe at this point, a curse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said here, this really challenges our ideas that the perfect Christian is the nice, easygoing, never offensive, agreeable man. Instead, the real Christian is not someone praised by everyone. I know the late Tim Keller wrote a whole book and made a whole ministry out of uh, an otherwise helpful book in many respects, but out of this notion that he asked this question, would your city grieve if your church closed their doors? And on one hand, I get what he's trying to say, that we ought to be a blessing to the community. But on the other hand, that's really a half-truth. Because Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. A real Christian is not someone who is praised by everyone. So this is what persecution is. It can be open and hostile. It can be subtle and civil. It can be harassment. It can be just connection because of Christ. It can be words. It can be legal action. But because of our new life, because the Spirit dwells in us, because we are united to Jesus Christ, eventually the world will lash out at us because they hate Christ. John 15. Don't be surprised the world hates you because they hated me first. But this really bleeds over to our second and more important question, more specific question. Why does the world persecute? Why? We need to understand why the world does this. Because, again, we can misstep and fall into one ditch or the other here. The broadest, most basic answer to this question, of course, is that there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. From the very beginning, illustrated by Cain killing Abel because of his righteousness. The children of Satan wage war against the children of God. It's going to be like that to the very end. The unbelieving world hates Christians because through Christians, God is trampling Satan's kingdom. He's bringing it to ruin. But I want you to notice this careful connection here. Let's see, careful connection. Take careful note of the specific connection here. 
These two statements in verse 10 and 11, they're parallel to each other. Such are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but then in verse 11, such persecution on my account. And what you see, these two things go together. They're two sides of the same coin. They're speaking of the same thing from two different perspectives. I say this because chances are you're not going to be persecuted simply for being a good person. We've talked all along how, you know, even unbelievers admire and value a lot of these beatitudes. I mean, who really hates a humble person, a meek person, an agreeable person? Who really hates someone just because they have a mournful disposition or because they hunger and thirst for righteousness, justice, social justice, equality? Who really hates a merciful person, a peacemaker? Who really hates someone who's pure in heart? They, they just have good, honest intentions. The world does not typically hate such people simply for those things. Now, now, yes, there is an element. We read this from 1 Peter 4 earlier. There is an element where some of the world will revile you if you don't go along with their thievery or their drunkenness or their sexual immorality. Even in our day, of course, if you don't actively and openly celebrate LGBT, you could be reviled and harassed or targeted. But that's, that's true no matter whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist. In fact, we can be honest. You can, you can be persecuted or reviled just for holding Judeo-Christian values in our day. There are, there are many nominal Christians, many entirely non-Christians, who are reviled and mistreated simply because they're political or their social convictions. That's not the type of persecution that Jesus is speaking of here. Don't claim, don't jump to claim martyrdom simply because you hold the traditional moral values. Yes, the world hates morality. And that comes out from time to time. But what Jesus is talking about here isn't just mistreatment because of morality. And you know what? If we, if we examine the context from 1 Peter 4, the same argument is made there as well if you just keep reading. The mistreatment is because of Christ. The world doesn't hate the Beatitudes per se. They hate when these Beatitudes are connected to Christ and the Gospel. How do we know this? Well, there's some very important clues here in this passage. The first one I already mentioned. There's a parallel between my, uh, for righteousness sake and on account of me. As a Christian, ultimately Jesus Christ is our righteousness. It is on the basis of His imputation of His righteousness that we are united to Him. The boast of the Christian then is not in our own righteousness, but in His Received by faith, imputed to us. The world and the flesh hate such a message because it means that their righteousness is not enough. Because it means our natural righteousness is filthy rags. It means that the goodness of humanity is not enough. It means that the worst of people can receive forgiveness, and that's not fair. I saw this huge backlash just on Twitter last week because it came out that, you remember the, the Nashville 
um, school shooting. Um, the transgender person who shot up the Christian school killed the pastor's daughter. I read that the victims of some of those children who were murdered raised money to pay for the funeral of the shooter. And when that came out, you should have seen the backlash of people. Why would you do that to such a hateful person? The world hates the fact that even the most wicked of the wicked can receive forgiveness because it's not based on our righteousness, but His. It makes them angry. So when we deflect from our good deeds and we cling to His righteousness, the world will lash out. But even more than this, there's this little phrase, I could preach a whole sermon on this just warning you, this little phrase right here, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is an amazing statement. On one hand, Jesus is saying, this is the calling of all God's servants. This persecution puts you in good company. They've always treated my servants this way. But there's more here. Because in the Greek, this word translated, uh, this, this word so, for so they persecuted. This little word here means in the same way. In the same way. Connect that to because of me and righteousness. Statement's amazing because it's Jesus saying that the prophets who were persecuted before you were persecuted because of me. Why was Abel persecuted? Why was Elijah persecuted? Why was Jeremiah persecuted? Because they saw and spoke of Jesus Christ. Dimly, through types and shadows, but they were ministers of Christ. They were united to Christ. They were proclaiming the righteousness of Christ. So you need to see in this this respect, the prophets were not persecuted simply because they called out sin and, and called people to obey the law. Now, that's certainly a factor. That's not the ultimate reason. And calling out sin, they are implicitly saying, your righteousness is filthy rags. You need the righteousness of another. Your formalism, your outward morality, your superficial obedience of the law, your heartless worship, those things will condemn you. Those things will damn you in the end if you're not united to a coming Messiah who is your substitute in righteousness. So it wasn't the righteousness of good deeds that stirs up the wicked to persecute the prophets. It was the righteousness of another. Because the righteousness of another inflames both the religious and the irreligious. They can't deal with that. And to get even more specific than this, what is it most specifically then, I'm using that word a lot, I'm sorry, what is it most specifically about Jesus Christ and the prophets that brought on persecution? It wasn't Jesus going around and doing good deeds. He healed the sick, He fed the hungry. He made the lame walk again. He performed miracles. And the people, they wanted to make Him king. What inflamed their rage against Him? 
because he equated himself with God. He said, I and the Father are one. No man comes to the Father but by me. The persecution of the righteous on account of Jesus, the persecution of the prophets, was because the message that they proclaimed. Not necessarily the deeds they performed. So yes, the world hates to have their vices reproved. We know that. But the world hates even more to be told that their attempts at good merit nothing before God. They hate even more to know that they will be condemned on the basis of their good deeds just as much as their bad deeds. And they hate even more, and even more, even more, they are inflamed in blindless rage to be told that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no escape from the final judgment except through Him. That's what we're called to proclaim as Christians. That's how we walk in the path of the prophets. They spoke. They preached. They taught. They bore witness. They were a voice crying out to a lost and dying generation. So good deeds and virtue is not enough. We must take the gospel to every living creature. Brethren, this instructs us not to be silent before the world thinking that they will just see that we're different and ask us why we're so happy. This reproves us from removing ourselves from the world. We can escape persecution if we remove ourselves from the world. We're never around the world. But we fail in our commission if we do so. This reproves us as well when we become like the world. We're conformed to the world. They won't care about the gospel message we proclaim. We can preach it all day long. If they look at our lives, they're going to look at a gospel that's robbed of its power. They're going to look at, oh, this gospel claims to produce a holy people, but your life, you live no differently than everybody else. Brethren, it's good deeds coupled with the gospel message that we are called to bring to a lost and dying world. And it's those things together that bring on persecution, and yet it's those things together that are fulfilling of our commission. One without the other. And we've left off of our calling. Maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I haven't really experienced persecution. That kind of bothers me. Well, certainly this is a challenge to us. Take an account. Take an inventory of your life. Are you boasting in Christ alone? Are you boasting in His righteousness alone? Or are you silent? Are you failing to speak out? Have you removed yourself from the world? Have you been conformed to the world? Rather than the gospel cuts and divides. The gospel brings a sword and separates. It always does. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones said right here, if worldly people speak highly and lovingly about Christ, It's only because they don't know Him and haven't seen Him. Because if they did, they would hate Him as much as His contemporaries did. Brethren, make sure that people in your life see Christ for who He truly is. 
and the righteousness by which you boast in and are saved and is the only hope for the world. This is why the world persecutes. Because of Christ and Him crucified. That brings us then to our third and final consideration today. How is this persecution a blessing? How is it a blessing? How in the world is it a blessing? This is kind of the obvious question, isn't it? What kind of good and happiness and flourishing can come out of being targeted and harassed and reviled and sometimes worse? Well, I hope it's obvious that Jesus isn't saying that persecution is good or blessed just because pain is good or blessed or sanctifying. Jesus isn't trying to encourage us to try to be persecuted or aim to be reviled and outcasts. Persecution certainly isn't blessed because evil people are expressing their hate for Christ. That's not a good thing. We should mourn at such. No, persecution is blessedness because of the reward that it brings. If we're persecuted because of our union with Christ and His righteousness, then He is glorified in our lives. And that's our greatest purpose of living. If we're persecuted because of Christ, we have assurance that we are in Christ. And that the hate is directed at Him. And that's a tremendous honor to walk in His steps. If we're persecuted because of Christ, we know that the testing of our faith is at hand. And that can only bring spiritual blessings, far more valuable than earthly comforts and blessings. If we're persecuted like the prophets, then we have this confidence and assurance that God's Word is going forth and it will not return void. That God is using, our, uh, using us and His Word to build His kingdom. Don't we know that the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church? Don't we know how our, our God loves to work in reversals? That He turns Satan's schemes against Him? That He uses the evil of Satan and the evil of wicked people to build his kingdom and bless his people? How does not, that not bring us joy? Persecution shows us that God is at work. What a joy and blessing that is. If we're persecuted because, um, like the prophets, then it helps confirm us that we stand in that long line of the godly. And we know that we will be saved as they were saved. This proves who we are. It reveals the substance and and reality of our faith. It inflames our hope. It builds our confidence. It increases our love. If we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we see and we know that, well, we're trusting in the righteousness of another. It shows us that we're not pursuing the things of God simply to build our own righteousness or earn our own favor from God, but that simply out of love and gratitude for Him. We're living as He's called us to live. If we're persecuted for the sake of Christ, our love is put on display before a watching world. And even more than all this, if we're persecuted on account of Him, we have this confirmation of our eternal inheritance. And it reveals that question which we started at at the beginning. It serves to reveal and strengthen our confidence that we are 
are living not for the things of this world, but for the things of the age to come. It assures us that what Jesus promises here, the kingdom of heaven, is ours. Not by reward or merit, but because He is our righteousness. And because this is what He gives to those who faithfully endure to the end. An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for us. A, A reward that will far outweigh any difficulties that we may experience along the way. What can be more precious than these things? This is why Jesus says rejoice. Rejoice when you are persecuted. Don't seek revenge. Don't get angry at God thinking you deserve better. Don't get overwhelmed as if something strange is happening to you. Don't look at it as if God is angry at you or repaying you for some sin. Don't resent and hate our persecutors. Rejoice. Not because of the pain, not because evil people are lashing out against Christ, but rejoice because the genuineness of your faith is being put on display and it's being strengthened and it's evidence that God is at work and it's a seal of your eternal inheritance which you will enjoy in eternity. These are the blessings of the greatest kind. These are things that heighten our longing and our zeal and our anticipation for the world and age to come. They wean us off this world. How can we not rejoice in our souls at things that wean us off this world and just create a longing? Lord, usher in Your kingdom. Lord Jesus, come quickly. These are riches toward God that will never rust or fade away or be taken from you. They are blessings for all of eternity. And this is why such persecution is a blessing. Because of what it does for us spiritually, for what it does for the the gospel in, um, in this age, and because of the reward which gives us a little taste of, a longing for in the age to come, which we will shortly receive. Holiness and happiness always go together. This is the path of the blessed life. Well, brethren, as we conclude today, as we conclude this series, remember, remember again what we've seen all along. These virtues are not commands or exhortations. They are evidence that the Holy Spirit is work. They are marks of the genuine Christian. They are true of everyone who is a Christian. And in the same respect, we are also called to pursue them, to keep in step with the Spirit by faith. These virtues are paradoxical. paradoxical. They don't make any sense to the natural person. They run contrary to everything that this world values and seeks after in this life. Because they are directed and orientated and they orientate us towards the age to come. And this is what is most true with this beatitude. If there were no prospect of life after this age, then it would make total sense why we would do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering. But a mark of a Christian is that they see beyond this world. 
We know that our outward man perishes, but our inward man is renewed day by day. And so we strive, we fight, we discipline our body to focus our thoughts and our hearts on the age to come and the things of the age to come. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, they suffered, they endured, but they persevered by faith knowing that here we have no lasting city. If you look at the life of Jesus Christ, it was for the joy that was set before Him that He endured the cross, despised the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne, uh, uh, right hand of God, the throne of glory. Brethren, this is the path of the Christian life. Yes, Christianity will cost us a lot. It will cost us everything. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. It's going to cost us the tears of repentance. It's going to cost us the blood of persecution. It's going to cost us the pains of a disciplined and godly life. But it's not worthy to be compared to the reward to come. And this is my exhortation to you in closing. Do not cling to this world. Look to the age to come. As Martin Luther famously said, I've held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. That is what the Beatitudes call us to. A perspective, an orientation, a life of placing everything we have in His hands in light of what He has promised to give us in eternity. And the blessing of it is that He will never leave us or forsake us, even through the trials and difficulties of this life. Well, brethren, may God give us this perspective to value and envy these virtues and to pursue this life, fixing our eyes on Christ where He is seated in the age to come, that we might be faithful in the end and enter into our reward. Let's pray.